This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman. Welcome into, I guess this is episode four, episode four of Small Talk. I'm your host, Michelle Smallman. Thank you again for listening. And I want to, every time I'm going to do this, thank you to everyone out there who's subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Podcast One. It's really been very awesome to see the community building behind this and to watch something that we have created grow and develop. So thank you so much for your support. Uh, We didn't have a podcast last week. Um, We had a little bit of a scheduling situation. Situation, and then we were like, you know what? It's Memorial Day weekend. Everybody should relax, take some time off. So, because we didn't have a podcast last week, we are going to drop a double CD on you this week. Today, we are recording with George Sedano of ESPN. We're going to talk to him about LeBron James heading to his eighth straight NBA Finals, uh, those Heatles years in Miami. We're going to talk to him about Miami versus LA as a party city. Uh, I also want to talk to him about the Dan Levitard show because George was with that crew from the beginning as they built what it's now uh, an empire, uh, you could say, out out of Miami as well. So we're going to talk to George. And then later in the week, another post-show pod reunion. We're trying to book a gypsy to <laughs> tell Saruti's fortune. Uh, it's more complicated logistically than we thought, just trying to get this many voices together. But hopefully we will have Saruti versus Gypsy for you later this week. But before we get to Sedano, let's bring Tommy Freeze Pops on the line and we'll do three random things coming up next. Take 101 ESPN on the go with the all-new 101 Sports app. See the latest videos, listen to podcasts, and join the conversation with the 101 Sports app. Tommy Freeze Pops is with me. He's on the line, so let's get it rolling. It's time for three random things. All right, Tom, random thing number one. It was Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people were barbecuing, pool parties, a lot of people spending a lot of time on boats. And this is a yearly conversation my friends and I have about music on a boat. And it becomes kind of a hot take debate situation. But a question I posed to my friends a couple years ago was, if you could only listen to one artist and or, and or band on a boat for an entire season, what would you pick? And it's a tough question because you have to think, okay, does this person or band have a deep enough catalog that I won't get sick of it? You know, does it really match the vibe of the boat? Like for me, I love rap music. I love hip hop and R&B, but I don't know if that's necessarily the vibe I would get on a boat, right? So I always say that my pick is Dave Matthews Band because of the era I grew up in and just, you know, drinking a beer on a boat with like a turkey sandwich in a cooler situation. You can't really go wrong with Dave. But, you know, some of the the other picks that I get from people are, are Jimmy Buffett or Sublime or you know Bob Marley but the overarching theme for most people's picks is country music and so my question to you Tom is is country music the best genre of music to listen to on a boat no absolutely (laughs) not I I am not a country music guy so maybe that's just the wrong thing for you to ask me I mean the the clear number one genre to listen to on a boat is a it's a subgenre and it's yacht rock I mean, it's literally in the title, Yacht. You got to listen to Yacht Rock. You know, you got the Doobie Brothers, you got Michael McDonald, some Boz Skaggs, uh, Eagles. I mean, it's all there, right there for you. And there's a whole era of music dedicated to it. So it's all about Yacht Rock. So if you have Sirius XM, throw on Yacht Rock Radio and just enjoy the summer day. I mean, it's nice, it's smooth, uh, it's rhythmic, it's good background music. 
you know, a little hollow notes in your ears. It, it's good stuff. Uh, so I'm going Yacht Rock. Country, not for me. No way. I, I, <laughs> I guess. It's too, it's country is like too sleepy to me. You know, when I hear country, I like want to go to bed. But Michael McDonald makes you want to crack a beer and party on a boat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. You know, when Michael McDonald's doing a cover of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, I'm down. <laughs> I am all in. You know what I just realized is I think that this is a very regional conversation because you are from New England, so you're literally thinking sailboat, yacht type music and i'm in the midwest thinking on a lake probably like a brown lake you know that you're it's kind of suspect you don't know if you should jump in or not what kind of creatures you may encounter when you're in there so i think i think country for me fits like my pontoon boat scenario whereas Mm. yes on a sailboat your you know steely dan toto yacht rock probably would fit better yes steely dan that that's what i'm talking about (laughs) yeah eagles i mean there's so many ways you could go uh, Jimmy Buffett, like you mentioned, is good. I, I mean, Bob Marley. I love, I love Bob Marley. So, you throw that in there. But yeah, yacht rock is the way to go. Um, but yeah, you know, I guess in your region of the country, country music is probably a little bit more prevalent than up here. So. I guess that makes sense for the conversations that you're having. Okay, well, before we move on, who's your pick? Who's your artist or band that you would listen to if you could only listen to one on the boat? That's tough because I'm a playlist guy, but if I had to, like, go one album, hmm, I'm going to go Doobie Brothers. All right. Interesting pick. Yeah. Nice. That, that's my that's my go-to there. I wouldn't have guessed it, but I respect it, okay? <laughs> All right. Random thing number two. As we, This is another Memorial Day barbecue observation. So I, okay. I think that I've come to – this is just an armchair psychology uh, assumption. But I think I've realized that the way a person dips a chip is a direct correlation to who they are as a person. Okay, so hear me out. Okay, you have like a subset of different dippers, right? You have the the aggressive dipper, the one that gets the whole chip in there, puts way too much salsa or guac on there. You know, they're going to dump it on their shirt. You know, they're kind of like a liability as a person. They live their life dangerously, but they're really fun. You know, they may have kind of like an OCD consumption issue, but we overlook it because they're a good time. Right. Okay. Okay. You also have like the people that just dip kind of like the tiny edge in there. You know what I'm talking about? Mm. Like the general yeah, circumference. That's no, that's no good. Yeah. That that's not you, from what I can guess. <laughs> but you know, like <laughs> the general circumference of the chip is kind of untouched, and you wonder why they're even dipping at all. And you know, my mm. friends that dip this way, they love paying their bills on time. They follow the rules, but they're like a very considerate and thoughtful friend. You know, like they're gonna have your back if you call them at 4 a.m. Just like they're not gonna really get the full chip in there and take a lot of dip out of out of the guac situation you know what i mean interesting okay okay you yeah, have a, I'm, I'm with this you have a double dipper usually kind of one of your messy friends like when you get in their car you know you're gonna have to move things off the side of the of you know the floorboard they may have lived at home like a tad too long but they have you know the best <laughs> stories because they really don't give a bleep you know they're gonna double dip yeah. even in public sure sure okay i'm with this I'm with this line of thinking. Okay, there's there's two more categories I have, okay? Right, let's hear it. The person who puts the dip on a plate with a spoon, and then they grab, like, four chips, and they don't actually uh, dip in the community dip. This person yeah. is, like, probably your most judgmental friend, but they've got their stuff <laughs> together. Like, they're kind of okay. hashtag goals, but they're also really annoying. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know what definitely. I mean? Yep, I can see that person in my head right now. Okay, and then the last one I noticed... 
There's a person that I was with this weekend that every time they would go to grab a chip, they'd grab like the broken debris chip. You know, it was never the full chip. It was like the little tiny chip. And I I said to him, I was like, live a little bit. Like, let your hair down. There's more there in the world for you. Like, get a big chip and go for it. That's a weird move. Like, what? Like, when you're using the debris chips, you kind of need to, like, put those in a spoon and then stick the spoon with the debris chips into the dip. So you're basically, like, have more dip than debris, and then you, you eat the spoonful. That's that's how you do that move. But, oh. I mean, clearly you can tell what type of person I am. <laughs> yeah. When, giving that. when you're already <laughs> thinking, like, dip to debris ratio where you need to include a spoon, Tom, I think we can all guess what type of dipper you are. <laughs> Well, okay, so, I mean, I really like these categories. I think they all match up pretty perfectly, but I haven't really thought about, like, you know, what type of dip makes you what type of person. But what I will say is, you know, there is an optimal way to dip anything. Um, all right, enlighten us. You don't want to have too much on the chip because then you're not really enjoying the chip. You're just enjoying the dip. And at that point, you might as well be eating like a stew or or something that's similar to like a thick dip, you know, like, or, or you might as well just be eating the dip. Um, so you need to have the optimal amount of dip per chip ratio. And I, I like to think it's usually about half the chip is covered in dip and you don't want to go too high, you know, maybe about a quarter inch off, off the, uh, off the chip. Uh, and I'd say that's probably the correct way to dip with anything. Um, now you, you mentioned that some people just put a really tiny amount of dip on a chip and I would only do that if I'm really not sure if I'm going to enjoy the dip, you know, like if you're just testing a dip out, maybe it's a salsa that's homemade and you don't know if it's spicy or if you're, you're not really into like a mango salsa and you want to see if it's like a fruity salsa. Yeah. Maybe try it out like that. If it's been sitting outside in the heat for too long, you're hungry, but you just, you're not unsure. Right, like I'm fine with a test dip. That that's what I would say. You do that, um, but no, I mean you gotta. If you're gonna go for a dip, you need to go pretty much all in and and enjoy yourself. You know. Um, now, as far as people that scoop dip onto the plate and then do the mini handful, oh my god, I hate that. And the worst part is like when you have like a buffet table of food set up, and included in the buffet table is the dip. The dip should always be on a side table with chips because then people think that they're supposed to scoop the dip onto their own plate and, like, have the chips as a part of their, like, main dish with, like, their hot dog and hamburger and everything else. Whereas the dip should always be on the side so people can get in there with their chip and just dip from the main bowl. You know what I'm saying? I get I get where you're coming from in this. And, you know, this is what this podcast is here for, you know, hot takes <laughs> on how to dip. Yeah, I mean, dips, dips need to be on side tables. That's that's a firm stance that I'm taking right now. Or like an elevated counter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any As long as you it's not I mean? a part of the main serving table, because then people get confused, and then they set the precedent for the party, and then if you're just standing around the serving table, like taking rogue chips and, and going for it, people give you the stink eye. And I've definitely been guilty of that. And look, I, I'm not one to care what people think, so I'll still go for it. But I know other people may feel judged, and that's not right. 
That's not right. You're just trying to enjoy a dip. Okay, yeah. so moving on to random thing number three. I hate to do this to you, but I have to. Um, so in the second part of the podcast today, we're going to be joined by George Sedano, who works for okay. ESPN LA. You've seen him on... I think I know where this is going. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Like People have seen him on SportsCenter. He's been doing sidelines for the NBA. And we were supposed to tape with him on Friday, but he got sick. And I said, oh, no worries, because part of the reason we're having George on is um, because he covered LeBron in Miami during the Heatles years. So I said, mm. oh, no worries. Um, and it'll actually work out better to tape it on Tuesday because it'll be after LeBron has advanced to the finals. I had every confidence that LeBron would somehow carry these Cavaliers to the NBA finals. And so that leads me to random thing number three. How sad slash angry are you that the Celtics are now out of the NBA postseason? I mean, it's sad. It's just sad. You know, and I know a lot of people will hear that and be like, oh, shut up, freeze pops. You're a Boston fan. All your teams are good. Blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, fine. Like, I get that. But, I mean, this Celtics team and this specific run was different, you know, because Boston fans are used to, at this point, over the last, you know, decade and a half, we've had really good teams and we're always, you know, the favorite. And this was an underdog situation. Everyone kind of rallied around these guys because of all the injuries and all the young guys that were out there. It was fun to root for the underdog. I mean, this team was not supposed to do this. And, of course, we run into LeBron, who, of course, beats us in a seventh game at home. The worst shooting performance the team has had in, like, two months. It was brutal. It was so brutal. And, you know, I just hate LeBron. I mean, there's no athlete that I hate more than LeBron James. So he's your biggest all. sports hate for sure. Oh, there's there's no question. I mean, the, the last, I think, five times we've played him in the postseason, he's He's beaten us. I think in 2011 and 2012, he beat the Celtics both years. He effectively closed the window on the Pierce Garnett era. And then in 2015, when we snuck into the playoffs, he swept us. And then the last two years, he beat us in the Eastern Conference Finals. So it's they haven't beaten LeBron in the playoffs since 2010. So it's not like, well, yeah, we own LeBron. No, like LeBron owns us at this point. He is our daddy. So... <laughs> I, I just hate him. It, he he's so good, and like even when you think you have a shot, he still wins. He just finds a way. And I am begging the basketball gods to send him west. I need him out of the Eastern Conference. I mean, eight straight years. This is insane. It is insane. Do you think your LeBron hate is comparable to my Rams hate? Hmm. Like how That's a really good one? How severe because... are we talking here? <laughs> So I really don't like LeBron, and it's purely because he just destroys my team. And, I mean, there's other stuff, too. I don't really love the way he handles himself on the court with the refs, and he's just kind of a crybaby. And I know people will be like, oh, Tom Brady's a crybaby, blah, blah, blah. But um, you know what? He plays for my team. So, yes, I am I am being unfair, but okay. That's, that's sports. We don't need to be rational. Um so, yes, I don't like LeBron, but I can at least respect how good he is. Like, he eight straight finals is insane. And he's 33 years old, which is ancient in the NBA, and he's played more minutes in the playoffs than anyone ever. I mean, his, his numbers are literally untouchable, in my opinion. I mean, you could make the argument that LeBron is better than Jordan, and I would hear that argument. 
Whereas your hate for the Rams, I feel like they could go on a streak winning multiple Super Bowls in a row, and you would not be able to even give them a little bit of credit because they completely ripped your heart out. I mean, I, I, I can't even fathom what that is like. Yeah, there's zero respect that they will ever get from me. So I guess I guess your LeBron hate will never compare to my Rams hate. No, no, I can't. I can't ever imagine my any of my teams ever leaving. And I mean, the Rams are pretty good. I mean, I don't want to, mm, you know, talk about the Rams in a positive. I mean, you know, they have one of the best defensive players in the league. And they have one of the best offensive players in the league. They just signed a bunch of guys. I mean, they're yeah. Let's see how that I offensive line holds up here. I don't know. I mean, I know that you're going to be rooting them for them to lose every game, but the Rams, they're looking pretty good, Michelle. This took a gross turn, so I'm going to end it now. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks. Yeah, that's fair. Thanks, as always, Tom, for your time, um, excluding that last, like, 45 seconds, which was unnecessary. <laughs> but I'm sorry. That was really uncalled for. It really was. But you know what? I understand that since you're in pain about your team, that now you're projecting that pain yeah. onto me. So I, I, I forgive you. Up next, we're going to do a deep dive into the greatness of LeBron James. We're going to do a little review of his years in Miami, those Heatles years. George Sedano of ESPN is up next. Take 101 ESPN on the go with the all-new 101 Sports app. See the latest videos, listen to podcasts, and join the conversation with the 101 Sports app. So with the NBA Finals this week, there was really only one guest that I thought of to join Small Talk, and that is George Sedano of ESPN. Uh, you have seen him on ESPN2, on a show Nacion, on SportsCenter. You've seen him doing sidelines for NBA playoff games on Sports Nation. He hosts a morning show from 6 to 10 Pacific on ESPN LA. Uh, but George covered LeBron for a very long time in Miami. He knows all of the stories. He knows him as a person. So I wanted to get him on to talk about LeBron. So George, Thanks so much for joining me. What's up, girl? Well, what's up, George, is that LeBron did it again. He beats the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game 7 at, you know, TD Garden, which no one anticipated. He is headed to his eighth straight NBA Finals, and you covered him during those Heatles years. You know him really well. How impressed are you with what LeBron's been able to do this season? It's the most impressive performance by him going back to the 2007 team which is him and Larry Hughes and Booby Gibson and those guys and kind of dragging those guys to the NBA finals with you know going through a Pistons team um, that was more difficult than this particular run that they were on so but I, I man you know Larry Hughes probably at that stage of his career still better than Anyone on that Cavs team not named Kevin Love, and since Love was not available to them those last couple of games, to me it's so close. Like you're splitting hairs between those two teams. Maybe if Love is healthy, I'm giving the the edge to this team being a little better than that 07 team. But, yeah, I mean, basically you got to go back over 10 years to look at a LeBron team and say, man, he's had to do more work here than he's ever done. Um, he's had seven 40-point games, Michelle. Just to put that into context, Dirk Nowitzki is a Hall of Famer, lock, surefire, no doubt, right? Arguably the greatest international player to ever play the sport, top 20, 25 player of all time. He's had less than seven um, 40-point games in the playoffs in his entire career, and LeBron has done that this season. So 
for years people were clamoring about LeBron, like, oh, you know, yeah, he plays the right way, but does he have the killer instinct, right? And you hear, does you know, why doesn't he do what Kobe and Michael did and just go for 40 or 50? And, well, he's kind of done that this year um, out of necessity more than anything else. But, yeah, like he – people loved him and then they hated him. And it was all because he told Jim Gray – that he was taking his talents to South Beach. And how dare you do that to little old Cleveland. And even though, look, we've all been in that situation, right? We've all had the opportunity. You've had it just recently, right? Yeah. You've had the opportunity to say to yourself, all right, I'm available. Um, I have a contract. That contract is no longer, um, you know, is about to be null and void, right? I can re-up. I can go somewhere else. You have this flexibility personally. And you want to take on new challenges, et cetera, et cetera. He did what a lot of people in regular everyday life did. He was vilified for it because I think that what happens is in sports, and it's pretty ridiculous, is that we tie these guys or or these girls um, to our teams. And we feel like they are part of us when, in essence, they're no different than us. They're humans. They react a certain way. And they want new challenges or they want to accomplish things. And he felt like he was in a dead-end situation in Cleveland. Nobody was going to go play with him there. Uh, That was evident at that time. Uh, In that free agency in 2010, you know, I can tell you stories for days just on the 2010 free agency. Uh, I remember the day after the decision, I did a bunch of hits all over the country, right? Like I did ESPN TV. I did TV all over the place and radio and whatever. And I constantly said that we're going to look back at 2010 and that free agency and the decision, and we're going to say to ourselves, if this is the worst thing, in finger quotes, that LeBron has ever done, we're going to feel really stupid about this, okay? And in essence, that ended up being the case because LeBron has had an unbelievable life and for the most part kept himself um, out of any real trouble, right? Like maybe he's been snarky to the media or whatever occasionally. Like I remember after they lost to Dallas, he made that comment where he was angry and he said, you know, about the trolls. It's like, well, they got to go back to their life and I get to live mine, right? Like, and people hated that. But that was also along the lines of already people hating him <laughs> because of the decision. And it was, you know, they, everyone celebrated or most people outside of Miami celebrated LeBron losing that finals. Um, But yeah, that year, Michelle, was crazy. Um, It felt like, and I went on the road with those guys a lot, and especially during the playoffs, but even during the regular season, it was like every arena you went to was treated like that team's Game 7. I remember that first game they played in Boston against Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Rondo, and those guys, that championship Celtics team. And look, Kevin Garnett, Smallman is as intense a player as I've ever come across in any sport, okay? And, and look, I've covered all sports, so I, I can sit here and tell you that the dude is insane. And this is game one. I don't know. Can, can I curse and you bleep me out? Yeah, or, go for okay, it. Okay, all right, fine. So <laughs> Go for it. Let so it rip. I, I walk into the Celtics locker room in the pregame, right? And Kevin Garnett is pacing in the Celtics locker room. And he is banging his head, and he's going, and I'm thinking to myself, yo, this is game one. (laughs) This dude is acting like if this was the NBA Finals. Uh, But those guys and so many people hated them because, okay, the decision was part of it. 
But then they had the party for the pep rally for the fans in Miami. Now, granted, that thing was only supposed to go on like heat.com or something like that. And everyone took the feed and ran it on live television. So those guys thought they were having a celebration for their fans, right? Right. And I'm telling you, I was there. It was 18, 20,000 people in this arena on a random day in July. And there was probably easily tens of thousands more outside watching on a jumbotron, okay? And, you know, they said the the thing. They had the party, not one, not two, not three, yeah. whatever. Oh, Pat can come down and run point guard for us one night, you know, if he still <laughs> got it. All that stuff. And that incensed people. So it very quickly made me realize, oh, yeah, this is way different than anything else I've been around. And, you know, I I grew up in Miami when the Miami Hurricanes were the most vilified group of athletes in all of sports. So, But this took that to a different level. And, yeah, it, it, was, it was wild. I just, you know, when I watch him play and I watch the way that he talks to the media and just how he lives his everyday life, it's an insane case study for me because I think Brian Windhorst said it best, at least in my opinion, that he's normalized absolute greatness. And, you know, he has these expectations placed on him, even from when he was 17 years old and he's Mm -hmm. on the cover of Sports Illustrated saying, you're the chosen one. And then, you know, he comes out in the NBA and is this amazing player, but then, like you said, becomes this big villain because he chooses to go to Miami and play with his friends and chase championships. But then, you know, he gets it done in Cleveland and then it becomes this greater context about his his legacy day in and day out. And I just, I can't imagine every day or, or you know, I'll put it in context for you. Every day when you crack a mic, if, if someone's like, well, Bob Costas wouldn't throw it a break like that, you know, and like <laughs> compared you to someone who was an all-time great. You know, when you were covering him in Miami, did you kind of get a sense of that? Like, ever did he ever let on to the pressure he may have felt day in and day out? Oh, I think after they lost to Dallas, I mean, we talked to him at length about it. He told me he spent two weeks in his room after they lost to Dallas. Like, he didn't leave. He was in the dark. And, you know, that's when he, like, I believe he told me that's when he first really grew a crazy beard. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he remember in that series against Dallas, um, and he mentioned it this season when they played Toronto. Uh, Dwayne Casey was the head coach in Toronto, just got let go this year after being the coach of the year. Um, <laughs> Another and, LeBron casualty. Yeah, and, but LeBron talked about how Dwayne Casey helped change his game uh, because Dwayne was the assistant coach. Dwayne Casey was the assistant coach on that Dallas team that won uh, under Rick Carlisle with Dirk and those guys. And they forced LeBron into uncomfortable things. They didn't let him get to the basket. They clogged the paint. They played zone a ton. And they forced LeBron to shoot. Or they forced him into the post where he wasn't comfortable. At that stage of his life, seven years, eight years, or whatever it was into his career, he wasn't comfortable in the post. And the running joke um, that we had in Miami, and I think Levitard and those guys still use it occasionally, is you couldn't post up J.J. Barea. Uh, And, you know, J.J. Barea, for those that don't know, is like my height. He's like a five nine <laughs> Puerto Rican point guard. Though I'm Cuban, he's Puerto Rican. It's similarities there, but you get my point. He's clearly way more skilled than I am at basketball because I'm sitting here talking to you and he's still playing in the NBA. Um, but yeah, like that was kind of the running joke, and it forced LeBron to really reevaluate himself. Um, and Eric Spolstra, to his credit, you know, was in LeBron's ear and is like, "Look, for us to win, um, multiple things happened there." Um, he realized, right, self-reflection, I got to change my game. He went and worked with Akeem about, with his post moves, uh, for his post moves, uh, like a lot of guys have done. And 
he met with Elijah for the summer a couple of times and, and kind of worked on that. You know, Spolstra convinced him to play the four, uh, the power forward position, which no one had ever convinced him of doing before, but cre- you know, explained to him about all the mismatches that they can create there. Um, because there's never been a power forward who can create those kind of mismatches because of his strength, his size, his acumen, his uh, passing ability, all that stuff, right? Like just all of it combined. We've never seen anything like that before. Um, and it can open a lot of things up. And then Dwayne Wade uh, went with him on vacation to the Bahamas and expressed to him where in that first season it felt like those guys were taking turns. Um, you know, Dwayne made another sacrifice. First, the first sacrifice was obviously giving up his franchise um, to his friend, who was the better player at the time, uh, coming in and welcoming him in uh, with open arms. And the next step was, okay, look, if we're going to be at our best, I'm going to have to learn to play off the ball more, Dwayne Wade, and you're going to have to ball- have the ball in your hands more, LeBron. And Dwayne did that too. So there was a lot of stuff that went on there in that first year. And LeBron alluded to all that stuff. And to me, that is showing um, a lot of uh, self-reflection, you know, obviously looking uh, within and seeing what his faults were, how much pressure there was for him to win, that he needed to make these radical adjustments at the time, right, in some of these cases, to be able to get to where he needed to be. And and it all paid off. But, yeah, he he let it be known. you know, maybe he guarded it a little bit, but he was pretty open considering what he had just gone through, and it was pretty raw still. Okay, so what is your favorite LeBron story during his Miami years? Like a story that maybe you haven't shared or something that happened when the cameras were off? Just something that you will always remember. Oh, man. I, I don't know. I Look, man, there's so many of them. Like, I think that the Harlem Shake video, right, was a big thing at the time. Because remember how popular that thing was? And then they took it to like a different stratosphere um, when they did their video. I think, man, at the time, I want to say it was like one of the most watched NBA videos that wasn't basketball related like ever or something like that. It was insane, like the amount of YouTube hits it had, the original one. And so the story on that is this. Okay, so every year. The Heat, they do multiple, like, big-time season ticket holder events, right? And they have this one particular event that is done at Pat Riley's house. And it's, um, I believe it's, like, some sort of military event or something like that. Like, Pat is big into the military, right? So they're at this um, function, and um, they want to do this video. And Pat was adamantly against doing the video because he's like what what are we doing like are we serious with this like like we can't be giving teams any more ammunition on us look at all this stuff because look he was a little gun shy right from the pep rally stuff and um you know all that and and he's like you know again this is all fresh in their minds and he thought that this is still like March of 2013, and they're coming off their first championship. He wants them to be super focused on trying to repeat because obviously, you know, there's enough challenges in the East, and and then you know if they get through through that, they have to get to the West. And there's like, you know, he thought it would actually make them lose focus. When on the contrary, it actually made them focus more because they got to be more loose. Um, so. You know, LeBron and, and, and the guys convinced Pat, and, and Spolster was on their side too, um, to do this thing. And, yeah, like, it, it was awesome. Um, there's some fun moments with those guys, like partying, 
after championships. Yeah, that's what we want to hear. Come on, give us the party story. Well, there's the Chris Bosh um, after they won the championship, right? Where Chris Bosh is at like some uh, adult entertainment gentlemen's club. <laughs> okay, after dark. Wi- with his wife, and they're throwing dollars all over the place. Um, you know, there was the night where they beat the Spurs um, in the craziest series, uh, you know, that and the Warriors series, probably the two craziest series he's ever been involved in. Um, you know, they went to, to Club Live and, you know, oh, Drake couldn't get in the locker room. What? They wouldn't let they. So Drake was trying to get into the locker room and they wouldn't let Drake in the locker room in Miami. And uh, eventually, though, Drake got his wish and hung out with those guys because he was at Live. And there's pictures you can Google of that stuff. But, yeah. So, right. Kevin Hart, remember, couldn't get on the stage this year at the Super Bowl with the yeah. Philadelphia Eagles. Drake could not get in the Miami Heat locker room. They were not allowing him in there. And, uh, yeah, so there's, like, little moments like that, man. I'm That's awesome. To, I'm sure the, it was such an awesome time. Yeah, I, I'd probably, if I had more time, I could think about it. Um, but, yeah, those just little things like that stick out. Or well, Dwayne, after they won the second championship, pouring champagne on his knees and saying, <laughs> you know, you know, because he's had a lot of knee surgeries. He's like, oh, I got to pour one out for the knees. Got to <laughs> pour one out for each knee. Get me through another one, you know. And just all those things. Like, they had a really fun time, that group. Like, that group was as fun a group as there was to cover. Sure. So obviously you are from Miami, you lived in Miami, you worked in Miami, but now you're living in L.A. Uh, for those that don't know, you're on ESPN Los Angeles. You do the morning show from 6 to 10 Pacific. You also do Nacion on ESPN2, Sports Nation. You're all over the place, but you've you've lived Sports in- Center, Sports Center, sidelines on the NBA. Yes. I, mean, I, I, am, I am the hardest working man at ESPN you other really than are. Stephen A. Smith. You really are. They should give you a raise. We're saying I here now. So yeah, I think um, so, too. I think so, too. But since you You've been in both, you know, party cities, sunshine cities. I want to break down Miami versus L.A. on several categories, okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, George, what's the better party city, Miami or L.A.? Oh, Miami's the better party city because you can party literally 24 hours a day. Like, you can't – you can do that in L.A., but only if you're, like, in this, like, super elite Hollywood scene of, like, mansion after parties – and But any regular person can party in Miami 24 hours a day. So I think that that gives it the edge. Uh, no question in my mind. I mean, Saruti, who's a regular on this podcast, everyone knows Saruti. Um, we haven't ever told this story, but the most VIP situation that Saruti and I will ever be in was because of you, courtesy of you and your friend Gus, who's a Miami legend. Um, but even that, you know, we're at this place called Kiki on the River, and it's just – it's. It's one of those places that you can only go to in Miami. It's it's half inside, half outside. There's boats, there's bottles, there's, you know, celebrities and athletes. I mean, I'm with you. I, I pick Miami all day, and every day. that place that we went to um, is not like on South Beach. It's not like even in like the popular area of downtown Miami. It's on the Miami River off to the side right. in this kind of weird part of town that you would never go to, but it becomes a trendy place to be because it is that. It's out of the way and people can go there. And when we were there that night um, or that day slash night, <laughs> there were like dolphin players there oh, yeah. and stuff. And yeah, like you just, that's just the scene. Like, look, LA has a lot of that too in a lot of cases. But yeah, I just think in Miami, there's more opportunity for a regular person, if you're willing to spend the cash, <laughs> to go out there and find a good time for a lot longer. Okay, both cities are knocked for kind of fair weather sports fans, but which city has the worst sports fans, Miami or L.A.? You know what? I, oh, man. Um, I, I do think they get knocked unjustifiably, right? Okay. Because I think what happens is this. is, And I can make the case for both sides. In Miami, 
Um, you know, Miami is this lavish town, right? Like, because people are partying in it or whatnot. But really, the core of Miami is not a rich city. Um, unlike LA, where there's a ton of money here. Uh, so the regular fans, they get priced out in a lot of these cases. Uh, in both cities to some extent, but more so in Miami, I think, because the big ballers who fly into town or the corporation types who want to buy up the good seats. Um, you know, they kind of fly in and out and helicopter in and out of games whenever they want. So mm-hmm. it gives Miami a bad rap in that regard. You know, uh, Miami's not South Beach. Miami is Hialeah and Kendall and these small towns you've never heard of where diehard fans live. And when teams win their championships, they go on the streets and, you know, and start, uh, you know, getting pots and pans and clanking them together and, and do mini parades in their neighborhoods. Like, that's the type of stuff you see without burning anything, by the way, too. Okay. So there's that. Like, uh, you know, there's no need to burn everything when, uh, when teams win. Uh, in LA, uh, I think that, um, I, look, man, if you've lived here for any stretch of time, you know how hard it is to get in and out of this town, like around <laughs> this town? It is unbelievably difficult. Um, but I think L.A. has a stronger history of sports just because they've had teams for a lot longer, right? Like the Dodgers go back to, you know, I think they were inaugurated in 59 and or started to build the stadium in 59 and all that. You know, the Lakers have been around for a long time. They moved from Minneapolis, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago or whatever it was now, um, you know, like they just have had, they have more, a more rich history, I think, than Miami does. So I think they have the edge in regards to that. You know, but I don't blame L.A. or Miami sports fans. I was t- talking to somebody about this the other day, and you can probably appreciate this because you did live in Connecticut. You lived in a <laughs> place that has... I try to forget that. Yeah. I know. We all yeah. black it out. Yeah. But four-season cities, right? So yeah. we have this thing in the Midwest called Sunshine Gill, or at least that's what I call it. When, mm-hmm. you know, when it's nice outside, you feel like you have to take full advantage of it because you know it's a depleting resource, that it's going to be cold and disgusting before you know it. So, you know, I look at sports fans in LA and Miami and think, you guys don't have to deal with Sunshine Gill. Like, I don't really blame you. I'd be at the beach no. or doing other things too. It's sunshine all the time, um, basically. Like, you get 300 plus days of sunshine in both cities. So it's really, it, honestly, it was when I left Connecticut, it was either, I was either coming here i was going back to miami because it was palm trees and sunshine is where i need to be but yeah exactly having lived in connecticut what the man i remember um after my first winter there the first day that it was like 55 degrees i was out in shorts if you would have told miami me that i would have been in shorts in 55 degrees i would have laughed you out of the building okay um but yeah that's just what it is and then all of a sudden everyone's out like oh my god yes it's not freezing right now and yeah it's it's just different man like and and it's not look i'm not saying it's that we're we're better for it or worse for it it's just different and it's okay that it's different okay so which city is the better city to be a celebrity miami or la well i don't mean what do you mean in the sense of like can you hide better so I was because you can hide better in Miami. Okay, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. So when I was thinking about LeBron, I was I was reading a lot of stuff about him over the past couple of days, and I was reading how he used to bike to the arena. He used to ride his bike yeah. to the arena. He mm-hmm. loved he it. Did. And I was thinking Miami more so than L.A. is a city where I think they kind of have celebrity apathy, you know, where they're just kind of like, okay, whatever. Like, there's LeBron. I mean, I'm sure people freaked out. But, you know, just like in New York, you see celebrities on the street all the time and people are just kind of unaffected. Where I think in L.A., people go there kind of seeking that out. But- well, the, the tourists come here seeking it out. The locals don't care um, because, you know, I can randomly be anywhere and run into a celebrity here. Um, but I think that what happens is the difference is 
places like TMZ, right? Like they're based here in LA. So they're searching for you all day long and they have tips and this, that, and the other. And that happens way more in LA than any other city, including even New York, because Harvey Levin's uh, offices are here in LA. So in Miami, they may have like a random freelancer or whatever, or New York, they've got some freelance people or whatever. But in LA, like, you know, if you, if you're at LAX and you're famous, um, you're getting hit up like that. That's just it. Like that's the reality. Man, they even hang out here outside our place. Really? Um, <laughs> and and they'll find like man. I, I'll tell you, I'll walk out of here and see TMZ guys all the time. Like it's just that's that's it's just different. And I think that's the difference is that you know TMZ and those websites, Perez Hilton, like they're all here uh, in LA. So I think that's what makes it more difficult for celebrities here is that there's just the access to them and these companies. Uh, that work in the gossip industry, uh, you know, take advantage of it. So when I, you and I worked together, we had a thing where we were both kind of obsessed with Pitbull. Mm-hmm. And my I, guy. I, that, I need you to you tell. You can actually, you, right, YouTube. Oh, you want me to tell the YouTube I was just going to say, I need yes, you to yes, tell all of yes. the listeners here your backstory with Pitbull. And then I want to break down his facial hair situation. Uh, okay. I haven't <laughs> seen him lately, so I don't know. But okay, so with Pitbull, um, uh, Pitbull is a Miami legend, right? He grew up. He actually started as like a gangster rapper, and then eventually <laughs> became uh, Uncle Luke Luther Campbell of the Two Live Crew. He discovered him, um, and then he was the one that helped convince him that he should go more pop um, because there was no one like him. He would stand out way more in that situation, and that's kind of when he made the shift. So I, I want to say this was 2009. Pitbull was like really starting to get on the scene, and I was invited um, to a BBC event uh, in Miami at the Super Bowl on South Beach. Um, it was, I thought it was a sports show that I was going to. Apparently what I was going to was, uh, Great Britain's most popular hip hop show, afternoon hip hop show. And I walk into this hotel and it's like in this room and all of a sudden I meet the DJ and there's another guy on turntables to my right. I'm like, yo man, that guy looks really familiar. I'm like, man, that's Jermaine Dupree spinning here live. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. So all of a sudden, you know, we're in there, we're all talking, and then we were talking about the Super Bowl, and um, Pitbull walks in, and he's talking, and we're all in the mix, and it's me and Jermaine Dupree and Pitbull and this guy, Tim Westwood. I don't know if he's still the most popular DJ there, but he was, a hip-hop DJ, a British guy. And you can find this stuff on YouTube. Just Google my name, Jermaine Dupree and Pitbull, and you can find all these YouTube videos yourself. And um, so Tim Westwood, the host, asks me about the halftime act. I don't remember who the halftime act was that year, but we were talking about the year before, I guess the year before or something like that was Paul McCartney, like one of those years. And it was after the Janet Jackson thing. Um, And I said it like that. I said, you know, after the Janet Jackson thing. And I looked at Jermaine Dupree and Tim was like, well, why did you look at, and he's like, yeah, man, why are you looking at me? And I'm like, no, you know, I'm just saying because, and I was like kind of nervous. I'm like, well, you know, you know, you know why I'm talking about you. And they were you just You know, like, Jermaine. Yeah, yeah. So it was like that. And then, you know, but me and Pitbull were talking about all sorts of stuff. Um, we started talking about like natural male aphrodisiacs and like um, music and growing up in Miami. And it, it was pretty wild. But yeah, so Pitbull and I became buddies at that point. We actually exchanged numbers. Uh, since then, he's changed numbers. Oh, um, but bummer. I did. I, I had um, I had Pitbull's number for a, a long time, and uh, he actually came on my radio show in Miami a couple times. 
And uh, we were cool for a minute, but I haven't seen him in many, many years. Well, I'm bummed that his number doesn't work anymore because I would have you text him. Yeah. Um, every time I see Try to f- join us here on Small Talk? Yeah, he should. That would be yeah. amazing because I want to talk to him about his facial hair because every time I see a photo of him, I feel like he slowly morphed into what I would call someone that looks like he is masterminding an international bank heist at all times. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he is, he's got that thin mustache. and Thin. Just, wispy. Just wispy. Yeah. And just yeah. that little dot of hair right yeah. on his chin, but then a beard like a small beard situation i just i can't really figure it out but it seems like a very curated look nonetheless it, it is it, i'm carefully crafted i'm sure um you know he's very particular in his look his clothing all that stuff like he is uh he is a man who is very well manicured in that sense he is okay so i had l duncan on the show on the podcast two weeks ago i guess okay and you know i know l but i i was like i guess i should do my research and google her so i found out some interesting things about her so i thought okay i, I need to google sedano okay which by the way if you google someone you really know it's a very weird experience i would imagine yeah um so i'm reading up about you and um something that i didn't know about you crossed my path and so we need to bring it up okay I I have a feeling I know what this is. Okay, well, I'm just going to read it to you from your Wikipedia page. Oh, here we go. In 2008, George also appeared on a reality TV show called Model Latina as a judge for the show's second season in Miami. Please explain yourself. All right, so my agent came to me and said (laughs) to me, hey, there is this um, modeling show. So Tyra Banks had that modeling show, right? What was the name of that show? America's Next Top Model. Right, so this was kind of like that, but just for Latina women, right? And it was me and uh, what was the her name? The girl who was on the first season of The Apprentice from Miami, um, Katrina Campins. She's like a real estate mogul. She ended up doing a Bravo show later, uh, okay. like a real estate Bravo show. Um, so she and I were on there, and um, she was great. Like I loved her. Um, she was awesome. Um, and then there was this, someone else, some dude um, who worked in like the modeling industry too. Like uh, I don't know, whatever. Maybe he was like a photographer or something. And um, we d- we filmed um, the the first episode, which is the you know the girls trying out, right? Like see who qualifies to actually get on the show. So man, like you know me, man, I can be pretty vicious and mean on the radio, but you put me in a room full of women, and I was a kitty cat. Okay, <laughs> Katrina was so mean. She was the um, uh, Simon Cowell. Um, so you're the Paula. I was Paula. I was so Paula. I was like, you know, I think you could do this, but maybe you just need to work on this a little more. You know, like I was so nice. Like I was not mean to anybody. And I felt so I felt so bad for some of these girls. Like it was just like even when I knew it was like, oh no, girl, it ain't gonna work. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I was just like I tried to frame it so nice because they were so mean. And I was like, somebody's got to balance this out and be nice. Well, needless to say, um, I was only – now, I think they did a couple of more episodes. um, But I only did the one because they thought I was too nice all the time. But I was like, hey, I was just trying to be Paula. Uh, But I did do the one reality show. It it paid pretty well, I got to be honest, just for the one appearance. Um, but yeah, that was my one foray into reality television. Um, okay, so last thing for you. We need to bring it full circle, but also do something different. So we talked about LeBron at the beginning of this interview. And, you know, with the rise of LeBron kind of be- 
came the rise of all of these Miami media personalities, including yourself. Um, mm. You know, when I got to Bristol, they referred to them very kindly as the Miami Mafia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's so many of you guys up there. Um, but you and I talk about this all the time. I, I want to talk to you about the Dan Lebutard show, which mm-hmm. I am just such a fan of. I find it's hard to be a fan of shows when you're in the media. but It's the best show on, on radio. It's, it's the, not even close. It's not even close. It's the best show on radio, best show on TV. I, I just love it so much. So as someone that has been a part of it, that is a part of it, you're in the Levitard family. Tell us what it's like working with those guys and give us just a fun, offbeat Levitard story. Well, I think for me it's a little different, right? Because I I know those guys when they started, right? So I was there at the same local station when they started. So they were doing afternoons. And actually, by the time I got there, they were like two or three years into it um, because I was working at Fox before then, and I came back to Miami. And I was doing mornings, and they were doing afternoons. And it was, you know, at first, you could – the way it was described, right? Like we were going up against this old-school, established juggernaut – sports radio station with like all the old school personalities that you grew up listening to when you grew up in that particular area. And we were the young 20 somethings, 30 somethings, just being snarky jerks, right? Like, (laughs) and we were just goofing around and they used to, the other guys at the other station used to quote it as sissy radio, particularly about Dan's show. Like they specifically targeted that show and called it sissy boy radio. Wow. And, um, you know, of course, tough macho sports talk radio hosts, (laughs) you know, so it was just so silly. Um, but man, like, when I knew that that show was going to be a real hit was they did a uh, rem- uh, an event at Miami Hialeah, okay? Now, for those that don't even know what Hialeah is, it's this sport from Spain with cestas. You can gamble on it. They used to have these, like, auditoriums where they played them. Um, it was very popular in Florida. Um, and in Miami, specifically in the seventies and early eighties, it was really popular because, you know, it's like a paramutual. It's like a horse track. You could bet on it, you know? Um, so, um, their producer at the time was, you know, like trying to bring high ally back. Like that was kind of their, their bit. Right. So they did this event where Stugatz had bet Luther Campbell, who I mentioned earlier of the two life crew. It was something about the Miami hurricanes over under or something like that. And if Luke one the, whoever lost the bet had to have their uh, their chest uh, waxed like <laughs> the forty year old virgin like yeah. Steve Carell and Stu Gatz lost the bet so they wheeled Stu Gatz out there in a very much like um, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs <laughs> in like this gurney with um, like a mask on just like that and they waxed him in front of eight or nine hundred people okay at this Miami High Life fronton. And right then and there, I'm looking around, and all these young people, okay? This was an AM radio station, okay? And AM radio stations are normally associated with old people because that's who listens to AM radio. And all of a sudden, there's this, you know, almost a 1,000 kids out there for this event. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is not normal, okay? Like, young people don't listen to AM radio. So that was kind of that seminal moment where you're like, this show specifically, but the station in general, was on to something. And when you looked at our numbers at the time, our 25 to 54, which is kind of the male target demo for sports radio, you know, they were okay, but our 18 to 34 numbers, which is the young demo, uh, which wasn't really the money demo for radio, were like competing with like the top like rock and hip-hop stations and all that stuff on this little piddly AM station. 
And it was like, okay, if we can just sustain this, like that group is going to um, become the, the prominent demo, right? Like the target demo. And that's exactly what happened. And Dan's show and our station, uh, but he was the catalyst of it, became the number one sports station. It became an unbelievable story because at that time, I don't recall any other like upstart station knocking off the established station, but it took a crazy group of young guys and some really forward thinking and really lucky because we had this crazy young owner at the time who spent a ton of money, uh, so much so that Stu Stugatz bankrupted him. Um, and we were lucky that Lincoln Financial Media, who owned the other, who owned the station, uh, the signal we were leasing it from, eventually saw how popular the station was uh, becoming, and they decided to just take it over. Thankfully, um, was was Stugatz bankrupting him before or after he rented out the Versace mansion? For that the was party? definitely after. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of the time where that right they rented the Versace mansion for a Super Bowl party. So if you've seen the Johnny Versace thing on FX, that mansion that you saw there, that was a place we had a Super Bowl party at, where Eli Manning showed up way earlier than everybody. Because if you know something about being in Miami, the party doesn't really start until close to midnight and Eli Manning was there like at nine because the invitation said nine oh, it's like Eli. Hey, Eli yeah we were like oh Eli that's yeah, cute you're, you're here way too early dude like this isn't really start but so he got sucked into us doing our red carpet thing and he was there forever <laughs> doing that and whatever um but yeah like it was wild like it was crazy and it was unlike anything I ever saw before and it started you know the heart and soul of that station was Dan um and that group and, you know, Mike Ryan was an intern. You know, he listened to the show, and he's now, like, you know, their big-time producer. Yeah. All those guys. They were all guys who listened. Uh, Billy, Roy, um, you know, Chris Cody is Greg Cody's son. But, you know, like, Dan has known him since he was a child. You wow. know, like, like all those things. Like, they, they're just this really big, happy family. And, look, I know, again, I come in this with pure bias, right? I know that, like, there are people that don't like Dan. But let me tell you something. There is not anyone that I've ever met in this industry, um, or forget about in this industry, just outside the industry, who is more giving than Dan Lebetard is. Like, Dan Lebetard, if he's your friend, he is your friend for life, okay? He has a very small group of people in his life, and and that's the way it should be. As you get older, like, that generally tends to be the case. You just want to be surrounded by people that you care about and you like and you get along with and you have fun with. Right. And he is as giving as anyone. You know what I mean? Like, that group and I, uh, and I'm kind of getting emotional just thinking about this, like we've been through each other's weddings, births of children, deaths of their family, like, like it's everything. Like we've, we are literally a family. Um, and Dan is always interested in welcoming more interesting and fun people into that family. And even though I'm not part of their everyday thing anymore because I'm on my own thing, like there's not a time that I go back to Miami that I don't spend time with them or his parents who you've met. Um, obviously everyone knows the dad because of the TV show, but the mom is even way more interesting. Um, and they're just interesting as a family. The brothers, this crazy successful artist. Um, and they're just a crazy, crazy fun family. Um, so yeah, like it, it's just like, I literally go back to Miami and I won't be able to go this Christmas, which would be sad because you know, we've got a lot of stuff going on here. I'm expecting another kid and, 
Uh, you know, the timing won't work out. Um, but I go back to Miami every year just because we do this thing at Dan's house with his parents. It's called Dirty Santa. And it's basically like um, it's like a white elephant party. Um, so you can only spend 20 bucks and you have to buy the most random, awful gift you can find. And you're doing a gift exchange. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's those kind of things that, you know, over the years, like you do that. Like Dan used to have Thanksgiving parties and he would invite the whole station Easter parties and invite the whole station like it was literally some of the most fun times of my life and you know you you foster these lifelong relationships uh through it you know and and you know we talk to each other you know we 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 don't have to talk to each other every day like there's times weeks and months go by since I hear from them but when you talk to each other whether it's me and Stugatz or Mike or Dan or whoever like even Allison or Mike or Chris or Roy like you know, you, you just you catch up, right? And you're just like you leave off wherever you left off before. Like it's 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 a very crazy, fun, awesome relationship, and it's um it's it's not just friends; it's real family. And I don't think that there that's why it's the Miami media mafia, right? It's right. um you know myself and and you know Dan's the Godfather, and there's you know myself and Izzy Gutierrez and uh you know Boog Shambi um you know he was a New York kid you know he worked in Miami forever and he was like Dan's roommate I mean I could tell you stories about that you know like uh another time um you know they were roommates together at one point uh you know obviously the whole group of that show Stugatz or whatever um and you know it's fostered out into branched off into a lot of different directions you know um you know Pablo Torre and Bomani to some extent uh you know Mina Kimes now Amina Hassan Sarah Spain all these people that have um that have worked in that environment and um and yeah like you know dan dan is probably as good as anyone at getting people over too on the air like i think that that's something that he doesn't get enough credit for um i would say the next person i've worked with here at espn that does such a really good job of that there's probably two people michelle beetle's great at it and rachel nichols to me is as good as anyone at it um she sells her people on her show as well as anyone and you know, there's just so I look, I can see her for days talking about those kind of people, but mm-hmm. Dan specifically, we could talk about we could do a whole separate podcast just on them uh one day if you want. You should. There's so many stories that I can tell. But yeah, like man, I, I don't know. Like if you ask me a specific question, I can give you one. But yeah, there's like all sorts of like fun stories. Okay, well that's a deep tease for Sedano on Small Talk Volume Two. We're gonna do a deep dive on Levitar. No doubt, no doubt. We can do that. We can just do the Miami days of just or we can just do like a media thing. Like we're just talking about the all the people's paths we crossed in media and how it all kind of intertwines. It's a very small community when you think about it. Once you're in this for for long enough, you know everybody. And, and if you don't, you there's certainly a six degrees of separation situation going on. Mm-hmm, for sure. I don't think there's any question. I mean, you've met him. You've been, you remember the oh. first time I took you to meet him? Yeah. We went out to some cigar joint on Lincoln <laughs> Road on South Beach and he didn't know you at all, but you were with me and you were good. That was the way it worked, you know? People would always ask me about my time at ESPN and I would say two two things about the Levitard crew. One, that when you meet Dan, I say that his genuine and caring nature is almost disarming. Um, when when you listen to him all the time, he's this, you know, obviously very intelligent, but, you know, gregarious personality. But when you meet him, he's um, almost like, I don't want to say he's soft-spoken, but it's it's just, 
you can really get such a sense of who he is as a person. He's very thoughtful in everything he says. Yes, exactly. And um, the other thing I always tell people is one of the most fun nights of my life is when you took me to watch uh, the Broncos Panthers Super Bowl with the entire Levitard. Oh, that's right. You were with me. Yes, that's right. You were there at the Clevelander. Dan, his brother, who you mentioned is an amazing artist. Uh, Poppy, who was like the biggest celebrity I will probably ever meet. Yeah, we took a picture of you with him that (laughs) day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then like you mentioned uh dan is my his mom lourdes is the star of the family she really is she's the boss she is the boss i wish that um she would get on air more i know she doesn't want to but she would put everyone in their place yeah no doubt man no doubt yeah i mean look those people are like i'll i'll go to bat for them all day every day i'll take a bullet for those people awesome well george thank you so much for joining me thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing so many great stories and like we mentioned we'll have to do it again soon you got it dude anytime good luck and uh we miss you around here we miss you but uh, i know you're doing big things so we're happy for you and thanks again to George and to Tommy Freeze Pops, as always, for joining me. And thank you guys for listening. And again, uh, for those, if you haven't heard it before, head to Apple Podcasts or to Podcast One, subscribe, rate, and review. And thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Small Talk. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app.